listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Whoa. Hey. Whoa, what? Bing, bing bam, booly bumbo. We still do this? We still make episodes? You Holy know, we crap. Kind of fell off the face of the earth there for a few weeks. We have a good reason, though, which we will explain in a moment. Yeah. Welcome to Best Served Cold, the true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Hosted by your two favourite Australians. <laughs> Australians? Australians. Oh, that's the official pronunciation. My name is Laura Elise. I am one of your excellent co-hosts. And you can catch me in my upcoming sequel, Too Fast, Too Glorious. <laughs> And I am Tama J. Uh, I hope you find this episode rather engaging. That was nice. Thank you. I was going to say the J stands for just engaged. Oh, damn. That's, you should have mentioned that before we started the episode. Oh, that would have been perfect. You would have been smart enough to think of it yourself. Yeah. Um, so in case we've posted it on most of our social media to explain the fact that we basically dropped off the face of the earth for like two weeks. But we got engaged. Yay. So that was very exciting. Um, would you like to tell the story of how it happened? Sure. Uh, so we ordered the ring together just because... Uh, I'm very picky. Laura's very particular about her jewelry. And I had a good idea of what um, you know we wanted in that. But we ordered it together. Unfortunately, Laura got notified of when it arrived. So that was a bit of a, a pain. Um, but... I threw many red herrings, much like our uh, our case studies of these episodes, mm-hmm. uh, and I tried to throw her off and give her false leads, and she got very upset. I very did. Upset. So for like a whole week, I thought he was just being the worst oh, boyfriend yeah. ever. I was so like, so he made this big thing out of how he didn't want to tell me where or when it was happening because he wanted it to be special and he wanted it to be a surprise. Mm-hmm. And then the ring finally comes. And he just goes, oh, so next weekend, do you want to like, you know, go out for dinner somewhere nice? And I was like, um, <laughs> so you, you've just spoiled this whole surprise thing you've been wanting yeah. to do. But um, um, little did she know that all the while I was planning a surprise with um, some of our best mates. Uh, she thought she was going out to lunch with two of her friends. Little did she know that. About 20 of her friends and families, family would be waiting for at the pub that we went to. Mm-hmm. And me there with flowers and a ring ready to propose. And I was just mainly impressed that he managed to surprise me. Yeah. Because as one of my good friends, uh, Bryony, pointed out, shout out if you're listening, she described me perfectly when she called me a bloodhound for surprises. Oh, yeah. I am so hard to surprise because I just know. I sniff it out somehow, mm-hmm. and I had genuinely no idea. To give you so, an idea, Laura the, literally the, walked past. You. But the second uh, I think I had, it was notified that the ring was here. She was going through all my shit trying to find it. I <laughs> may have snuck a peek in your camera bag. Yeah, make it sound like I ransacked the whole house and like. I don't know. I had a peek in one of your bags, yes, because I wanted to make sure it was beautiful. Yeah. Turns out we didn't realize American ring sizes, uh, because we ordered it from a really awesome ring seller in the States, are 
so we measured my finger and we went off Australian ring sizes. Turns out American sizes are super different. Yeah, really so different. I haven't worn my ring since I got it because it's being resized because it's yeah. way too big. I assume it's like differences within cent- like millimeters and inches and things like that. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd imagine that would be where the the differences draw the line there. But yeah. We're friggin' oh, yeah. engaged, buddy boy. Apologies that we kind of just disappeared, but we just kind of were just, mm. you know, celebrating with friends. Uh, we've had stuff on pretty much most yeah, weekends since it happened, which makes... It's been a rough boring. adjustment, you know, um, just Laura going back to work and mm. our schedules have just been so pretty intense. Hectic. Like, um, But we know. think we've worked out a good little thing moving forward yes. yeah um so i we haven't actually discussed it but i would assume we'll probably do what like three more weeks worth of episodes and then take a break for christmas and yeah years? yeah we'll, we'll we'll give you a proper for update two next yeah year? season two will will commence sometime during next year We'll um, deliberate and we'll figure out when exactly all that's going to go down. Yeah. But um, you guys will have a heads up. You know, obviously you guys will be taking some time off with your families and that and we'll be doing the same. So, you know, a little bit of a break. You yeah. Know, even, even, you know, murder aficionados need to exactly. not be exactly. such for a little while. Uh, I don't think aside from the big announcement, I don't think I have any housekeeping... Yeah, I think that's about it. So, look, why don't we just... We, we've just taken some time off. It. Let's just jump right into it. Let's get to what everyone's here for. Uh, and this week is a real doozy. I, I figured, you know, um, getting back into it, we've covered American serial killers. We've covered serial killers from the UK. We've covered Ivan Malat. We've done a few, you know, Australian serial killers. And there's just... A small percentage of serial killers or killers who've killed more than two or three people, right, Mm -hmm. in Australia. Mm -hmm. It's a very small amount of people, but it makes up for it in the grotesque nature of the crimes. Have we done it again? Have we accidentally done a theme without realising? I guess we have, yeah. Are you doing an Australian crime? Yes. So am I. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, okay. So but we to don't you, discuss what we do. No, we want to keep it as fresh um, as possible so before we somehow, do it. So we've somehow... We've done it a few times where we both did females, we both did cannibals. Uh, I think we've done it a few times where we both inadvertently did unsolved ones. And mm. now we're both doing Australian. So tell me, who are you covering this week, Tama? So I'm covering a man named John Miles Sharp. And... It's like I said. It's quite of a quite a doozy of a story. Um, he was a man who committed um, what's known as the Sharp family murders back in March two thousand and four. It was a double homicide. So um, you know, we're not really delving into serial killer numbers, but it's still a horrific crime nonetheless. So it's a f- familiar side. Um. Yeah, fam- familicide, I, I believe it's called. Uh, I'm not too sure. So, he was behind killing his pregnant wife, Anna, and his 19-month-year-old, 19-month-old, sorry, daughter, Gracie, in the Melbourne suburb of Mornington. For his part of the crime, he became generally known as the spear gun killer or the Mornington monster. So, you can kind of see where this story's... Heading towards. Yeah, I'm already not digging it. No. Uh, and just, like you know, a preemptive warning. This, 
this case is particularly gruesome, much like um, other cases where we go into gruesome details about suffering and things like that. If this is not the kind of, you know, stories you like to listen to, I'd advise maybe not listening to this one. It's a pretty intense story. As is mine, so let's just put that. Yeah. Discretionary. Um, yes. Viewer discretion over the entire episode. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, swearing. We have swearing yeah, in the show. We have lots of swearing. Just thought I'd disclaimer that before people start. Give us bad reviews. Yeah. We swear a lot. We swear a lot. If you don't like it, just, I don't think we've sworn you, yet so no. far, so just tune out. So, we got given this thing from our vet that you, like, stick on your fridge and it tells you when you're supposed to give your cats their worming tablets. <laughs> We're sitting in here. Mind you, it's dark. It's quite late at night. And yeah. this terrifying, like, beep, 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 like, just obnoxiously loud. And we're like, what the fuck is that? That is... Sounds like there's nuclear attack incoming. It's the stupid flea thing. Yeah, someone's inputted the, the launch so, codes. Why is it so loud? I, it, I don't know. I'm it doesn't, throwing that away tomorrow. It does not that need to be as loud as it is. The shit out of Terrible. Me. What the fuck was that? Okay. So unnecessary. <laughs> wow, continuing. Anyway, quick recap. <sighs> we swear, if you don't like that, please check Tune a different out. podcast out. Please don't leave us a one-star review. Yes. Um, so, Sharp was known for firing a spear gun into the head of his victims repetitively. Uh, he would later go on to d- exhume his, the body of his wife, dismember her, and then dispose of her body in a landfill. Um, and, of course, he's one of those guys who claims his innocence right. before eventually confessing to the murders later on. So, like with most stories, we'll begin with a little bit of a background. John Miles Sharp was born on the 28th of February, 1967 in Mornington, and he grew up in that area. Sharp met his New Zealand-born wife, Anna Kemp, where they worked together at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Not a good advertisement for that bank, but sure. (laughs) They married in October 1994, and Anna was four years his senior. They then lived together. That's kind of ominous, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, oh dear. <laughs> Laura's four years my senior, just for the context. Um, they lived together in various locations around Mornington Peninsula, area of south of Melbourne. Their daughter, Gracie Louise Sharp, was born on August 2002. She was born with a condition called hip dysplasia, a uh, conge- um, a abnormality in her hips which required orthopedic treatment by corrective uh, harness for the first three months of her life. She often cried and she had uh, a lot of difficulty sleeping, a situation which definitely would place strain on any um, modern marriage. Uh, Even after the harness was no longer required, Gracie still had difficulties in feeding and sleeping for which Anna sought professional assistance. In 2003, Sharp purchased a high-powered spear gun along with a second spear from a sports shop known as Sport Philip Marine in Mornington. He had not previously shown any interest in spearfishing, but was known to have testified the gun in order to become familiar with its operation in the backyard of their then Spinnaker Rise Mornington home. Soon after, in uh, September 2003, the Sharps purchased the house at uh, 116 Prince Street, Mornington. In about November of that year, when Gracie was, say, 15 months old, Anna became pregnant again. 
Sharp later told police investigators that the pregnancy came as a surprise to both of them, and Sharp apparently decided that he did not want another child. In his mind, one was enough of a burden and began to resent Anna and the unborn child. On the 21st of March, 2004, which is my birthday, incidentally, Sharp and his family attended a birthday function for a nephew. This one's hitting a little too close it is, to home. I don't know if it? I like this. It's like we're looking into, like, you know, the the, the looking glass and we, we're seeing our future. <laughs> um, family members reportedly said there was no tension whatsoever or any arguments throughout the day. However, on the 23rd of March, Sharp and his wife argued before going to bed around 10 p.m. He later left the bed and retrieved the spear gun from their backyard garage. Returning to the bedroom, Sharp fired the spear from a distance a few centimeters into his pregnant wife's left temple. Noticing his wife was still breathing, Sharp fired a second spear into her head, this one killing her. He then covered the body in towels and went downstairs to sleep on the fold-out sofa bed. It's been a long day for him. The next day, Sharp attended, attempted to remove the spears from his wife's head, but failed, removing only the shafts by unscrewing them from her from the heads. Oh, Jesus. The same day, Sharp also took Gracie to and collected her from child, the child care center. He also lied to a TV serviceman who came by the house to prevent him finding the his wife's body at which... That stage was still in the bedroom. He later goes on to bury his wife in a shallow grave in their backyard, and at some time between his wife's death and the time he killed his daughter, Sharp again went to Sport Philip Marine, accompanied by his daughter, where he purchased another spear for the spear gun. On the 27th of March 2004, Sharp put his daughter Gracie to bed in her cot and then drank several glasses of whiskey and coke in order to, quote, numb his senses. He retrieved the spear gun from the garage, loaded it with a newly acquired spear, and fired her ahead, penetrating her skull. His child, still alive and screaming very loudly, Sharp retrieves the two spear shafts which he had earlier removed from his wife's head and returned to the bedroom. He fired both into Gracie's head but realized she was still alive. He withdrew one spear from his child's head and fired again, finally killing her. He returned to Gracie's bedroom the next morning and pulled the spears from her head whilst holding a towel in front of his face so he couldn't so that he could not bear to look upon her. He wrapped her body in garbage bags and a tarpaulin uh, tarpaulin and bound her with black duct tape. He then disposed of her body in the Mornington Refuse Transfer Station, discarding at the same time the spear gun, the spears and some of the clothes and toys. On the 29th of March 2004, Sharp visited a local Bunnings warehouse, which is a hardware store here in Australia, in Frankston, where he purchased a roll of duct tape, two tarpaulins, and an electric chainsaw. The following day, he exhumed the body of his wife and cut it into three pieces. Oh my God. He then wrapped the remains in a, in a tarpaulin and disposed of them, along with the chainsaw, in waste collection bins in the Mornington Transfer Station. On the same day, he sent a forged email to Anna's family in New Zealand to create the impression that Anna was still alive and well. Rather than comfort the family, his email raised suspicions amongst them and Anna's mother reported her disappearance to the police in Dunedin, New Zealand. 
Sharp told police that Anna had moved to nearby Melbourne suburb of Chelsea with their daughter and denied any knowledge or involvement in her disappearance. He also arranged for flowers in the name of his wife to be delivered to his mother-in-law on their birthday. During May of 2004, Sharp gave several media interviews and appeared on national TV, speaking for his wife and his child's disappearance. In a part of his appeal, he was quoted as saying, Anna, our marriage may be over, but I still love you and you are the mother of our beautiful daughter, Gracie, whom we both adore more than anyone else. Sharp then said he had spoken to his wife a week earlier and asked for anyone with information to come forward. He, however, also maintained that she had run off with another man. Right. Seeming a lot uh, like the whole Chris Watts situation, yeah, is it very not? very similar. Yeah. On the 20th of May 2004, New Zealand police requested Victoria Police to conduct inquiries into the apparent disappearance of Anna Kemp and her daughter, Gracie. The same day, police from Mornington attended the Sharp home and spoke with uh, Sharp himself. On the 10th of June, he was again interviewed by police at Mornington, but he maintained the story that Anna had left voluntarily back on the 23rd of March. On the 22nd of June, 2004, police arrest Sharp, and during his first interview, this time at the Homicide Squad of St. Kilda Road, he continued to deny any knowledge of their whereabouts, but in a subsequent interview later on, after speaking to his family, he admitted to both murders. He told police he killed his wife because she was, quote, controlling and moody, and their marriage was unhappy. He told police, I was thinking of taking care of Gracie by myself and just Amongst all this madness, that's when I lost the plot, which has got to be the most Australian way to excuse yourself. Yeah, I just lost the plot. I just lost the plot, really. According to family members, Sharp may have also killed his wife because she discovered him abusing their daughter, Gracie. Some of his relatives believe so. The claim comes from uh, family letters revealed, um, as family letters revealed, Sharp had a history of abusing his children. Yeah. Uh, Police undertook a massive search lasting three weeks of the Mornington landfill site, finally locating both of the bodies. Sharp appeared in Supreme Court of Victoria where he was assigned and pleaded guilty to the murders of Anna and Gracie Sharp. On the 5th of August 2005, the court sentenced Sharp to life imprisonment with a minimum non-parole period of 33 years. Sharp resides in protective custody while in prison due to threats on his life from fellow inmates. Uh, And just to go on some media coverage of the Sharp disappearance, quote, appeals, confession, search, body recovery, and trial were all major news items in the Australian print and television at the time. The murder also received general media attention in New Zealand due to, you know, the ties there, Mm -hmm. as well as the New Zealand police force. Sharp's murder spree was the focus of the 2005 crime investigation Australia Season 1 episode, The Mornington Monster, in which the crime and the Sharp's actions were reenacted. The murder and also appeared in the 2005 book, 12 True Crime Stories That Shocked Australia by Paul Anderson, uh, which has deconstructs 12 of Australia's most intriguing and hideous crime cases, which is a very interesting book and I would implore you to check it out. Sharp's police confession also is also highlighted in the 2008 book Criminal Profiling and Introduction to Behavioral Evidence Analysis, third edited by Brent E. Turvey. 
In 2009, the case was again reviewed in on the 60 Minutes program Unmasking the Truth about human lie detectors who can unmask killers. And all the time, they know their husband... Uh, sorry. Um, the program about human lie detectors uh, unmasking killers, it's quoted as saying, it's tearfully pleading for help in finding a missing loved one. And all the time, they know their husband, wife, even their own child is already dead. And that is the case of John Miles Sharp, otherwise known as the spear gun killer or the Mornington monster. That yes, was awful. It's horrendous. So you know, we often go over things where we have sprees and serial killers and just general like mo's and things, and then you have rage killing like killings like this. Yeah, you know where it's just like. Obviously, there's a there's a detachment there where he doesn't want to use his hands or a blunt force or things like that to kill his, you know, yeah. his women and his his wife and child. But That's, a spear gun yeah. is still just so inhumane of a of a method to use. Mm. Not only that, but firing twice in your daughter's head. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's yeah, and she's still alive. Yeah, it's not. It's yeah. yeah, brutal. Incredibly. So, do they know? Was there like another woman involved that he was involved with? Nothing I could really find. Here's the thing about Australian killers: there's not a lot of research delved into after the fact. Yeah. Like with Son of Sam and and you know Ed Kemper, you had John Douglas interviewing these guys cracking things that no one knew about mm. you know after the fact but in Australia you don't really have that you don't have people interviewing these people and trying to find out as much as they can so he's still alive and in prison I believe so yeah, again well. it's one of those things where it's like is he I don't fucking know yeah. because no one seems to be keeping tabs on it it's like the Paul Wilkinson thing the yeah. Redfern um, Aboriginal liaison cop who murdered his his mistress um, yeah, it's intense. And he was cheating on his wife. It's like, there's one of the craziest things to ever happen in Australia, bar like, you know, Ivan Milat cases and that. And no one really keeps tabs on it. No mm. one's like looking into it, which I feel someone definitely should be. Yeah, the, mm, the spear In some gun. capacity. Yeah. Never liked guys that use spear guns. No offense. No, it is a very... Uh, so, it is a very Only detached because thing. I feel like I'm very biased because I dated two guys after high school that both loved going spearfishing and they were both absolute twats. I feel like it comes from a place of deductive reasoning. Yeah. Um, but also just, you know, spearfishing, you know, if you do it, whatever. It's just kind of like a detached from the earth kind of way of fishing, if that's a yeah, I get way that. to put it, you know? Yeah. So, as I said, I'm going yes. to be doing <laughs> Go on. dramatic pause. Um, as I said, I'm going to be doing an Australian case. Yes, I'm also. very excited. So, I feel like this may be a bit of a shorter episode because you talked about a single case that was a little bit shorter. Yes. And I'm talking about a single incident. There's nothing but... wrong with that. We'll just no. vamp on in the end and make, yeah. it, make it to the hour mark. <laughs> as we always do. So, this is sort of one that happened in the 80s and it really kind of rocked Australia because Australia as a country has always 
our national identity has almost always been that kind of small neighborhood safe bad yes. things don't happen in Australia kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. It's so just... a lot of newspapers and <clears throat> radio stations when they talked about this case back when it happened, they talked about it as the day Australia lost its innocence. So I'm going to be talking about the murder of Anita Cobby, which, as I said, it is a single incident, but it's kind of stuck in the collective uh, mind, I guess, of Australia due to the incredibly graphic nature of the crimes. Yeah. Um. So it's just one that, yeah, it's kind of stuck around most people. Our parents probably grew up, maybe not grew up, it would have been a bit after they were grown, but they would have been, you know, young adults you hearing about around. this crime. It was yeah. kind of like another cautionary tale for, you know, that loss of innocence, like don't walk home alone at night, yeah. don't hitchhike, don't do this. So it's kind of like Ivan Malak cautionary tales. Yeah, it, it, was, it was sparse, but we made up for it in the, in the significance yeah. of it. So it was the morning of February 4th, 1986, when a farmer, John Reen, in the western Sydney town of Prospect, noticed that all of his cows were gathered in the field around the one spot. He first noticed this in the morning when leaving the house around 9.30am. Thinking nothing of it, he jumped in his car and headed to a cattle sale. Returning roughly two hours later, he was perplexed to see that the cows were still standing crowded around the same spot in the same field. Thinking this was very odd and never having noticed this kind of behavior, he decided to check it out. It was then the farmer was horrified to discover the body of 26-year-old nurse Anita Cobby, who was badly beaten, mutilated, and bore a slit throat so deep she was almost decapitated. Oh. Anita Lynch was born November 2, 1959 in Sydney, Australia to Gary and Grace. She was known in her circles as being bright, full of life, and beautiful a regular on the beauty pageant scene in Sydney, including being the winner of Miss Western Suburbs pageant. While having a promising career as a model, her passion lay with nursing, which is what her mother, Grace, also did. While studying for her degree, she met her husband, John Cobby, and they were married in 1982. They were married for four, week, for four years, rather, separating only six weeks prior to her murder. However, at the time of her death, they were reconciling and were looking for apartments to move back in together. By 1986, she was working at the Sydney Hospital. After her shift finished at 3pm, Anita and two of her friends from work went to dinner at the local suburb Redfern. It was at 9pm one of her friends dropped her off at Central Station, where Anita would get the train home to Blacktown. It was her usual routine that once at the station, she would call her father Gary, who would drive up to the station to pick her up. However, once her train pulled in, she realised the pavement was broken, and being quite late at night, there were no taxis. So Cobby made the decision to walk home. This story was supported by two witnesses who saw Cobby leaving the train station. Her father was later quoted as saying that Anita would often work double shifts at the hospital and stay at friends' houses in the city, so when he never received the call that night to collect her from the station, he thought nothing of it, and so no alarm was immediately raised. It wasn't until the next day when Anita's work called her home as she'd never arrived for her shift that her father began to panic and filed a missing persons report. It was only the next day that her family was contacted to be told of her tragic death. Anita was abducted less than two kilometres from her home. 
Once the body was reported by the farmer to police, local officers swarmed the property and the investigation was swift. However, police had very little to go off. Cobby's body had been left completely naked bar her wedding ring, and DNA testing being what it was in 1986, the police weren't left with much to go off. Detective Ian Kennedy, who is now retired but worked the case at the time, was quoted as saying, We basically worked three or four weeks in a row, 11-hour, 12-hour days, emotionally up and down. It was a roller coaster. Yeah, I can imagine. Jesus. We had been very frustrated that nothing at the scene was very forthcoming. It was clean. There was no clothing. Don't forget, this was before DNA too. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Cobby was well-liked, was not involved in any drug or party scenes, and had no known enemies at the time of her murder, leaving police with next to no leads. Police asked the farmer who had found Cobby's body if he remembered hearing or seeing anything off. The farmer said yes, on Saturday or Sunday night, he was awoken by screams in the middle of the night near the farm. He did not investigate the sound, though, as the farmer believed the screams came from kids partying in the secluded area, which was very common. The first major break in the case came after a young girl, sorry, a, a woman came to police to say she had witnessed a young woman being dragged kicking and screaming into a car near the train station. Her and her brother had run out of the house to try and help, but the car drove away. They attempted to pursue the vehicle, finding a Holden car parked off the side of Reen Road. However, after searching the car and nearby paddocks with flashlights and finding nothing, they left figuring it must have been a different car. What's really sad is it was the correct car, with Cobby's murderers later claiming that they were hiding in the long grass near the car, waiting for them to leave. It was this car that Cobby was dragged into by a gang of five men. 19-year-old John Travers, brothers Mick, 33, Les, 22, and Gary, 28, Murphy, and Michael Murdoch, 33. Once in the car... Cobby was ordered to strip, and when she refused, the men savagely beat her, breaking her nose and cheekbones. Cobby was then forced to perform oral sex on the men as they drove away from the abduction point. Using her money, the men stopped at a local service station where they filled the car with fuel, then driving down the secluded Reen Road, they raped, beat, and tortured Cobby for around two hours before dragging her into, into a secluded paddock. Her injuries suggested that she was dragged through a barbed wire fence to get into the paddock. It was here the men continued to rape and torture her before finally, fearing being identified, John Travers slit her throat so deep he nearly decapitated her, finally killing Anita. Cobby's autopsy report indicates that at the time of this final act, she was still alive. So as I said, police initially have very little to go off. They have some eyewitness reports of Anita leaving the train station, the report from the family who saw her being abducted and John Reen's statement saying that he heard screams on either Saturday or Sunday night, but very little to point them towards who actually committed this horrendous act. On the 6th of February, New South Wales government offers a $50,000 reward for any information that will lead to the capture of Cobby's killers. On the same day, radio shock jock John Laws obtains an official copy of Cobby's autopsy report which had been leaked and reads it out live on air. When questioned why he would do this recently in 2016, Laws responded that the general public ought to know and that it incited anger in the public that murders like this were happening and we weren't being given the full details. The brutal graphic nature of her murder shocks and outrages the entire country of Australia and increases public support for the case tenfold. Not only are the public appalled, but seasoned detectives struggled with the graphic nature of this crime. One detective was quoted as saying... The look in the girl's eyes I will never forget. 
those dead eyes, you could see that she'd gone through hell. On February 9th, police attempt to jog travellers' memories by reenacting Cobby's movements of the night, including female officer Debbie Wallace dressing like Cobby and walking the length of the 912 train, the same one Cobby had caught the night of her murder. While she does this, detectives interview passengers and share photos of Anita desperately hoping for some leads. It isn't until a woman, who turns out to be John Travers' aunt, who becomes known as Miss X, comes forward to say that she believed Travers and the other four men were involved. Another informant came forward to give up the location of three of the men, John, Mick and Les, who were arrested at dawn, and the trio immediately deny any involvement in the case. However, Travers can't help himself. While arrested, he asks to speak to the same woman who, unbeknownst to him, has led to his arrest, Miss X. It's to her he confesses everything in detail. Police then place a wire on her and she gets Travers to recount the story again, this time under a recording. She also goes and speaks with Murdoch to get a taped confession from him as well. By the time all five of the suspects are taken in, into custody, just 22 days have passed since Cobby's murder, which is pretty impressive considering they had nothing, nothing Absolutely to go nothing. Off. No forensic evidence whatsoever. That's incredible. Between the five men, the men had over 50 prior convictions, including armed robbery, assault, theft, drug use, and rape. At the time of their trial, public outrage has risen to an all-time high, with crowds gathering outside the tiny Westmead Coroner's Court where the men's first formal court appearance was. Nurses in uniform gather in solidarity for Cobby, a fake noose dangles from a tree, and people holding signs pushing for the death penalty wait outside the building with the police gathered in case of trouble. So at this point, the death penalty has been eradicated and not been around for a very long time in Australia. Yeah, of course. As the men were driven away from the court in police vans, crowds searched the van, banging on the windows and screaming at them. Originally, all men plead guilty with John Travers... Sorry, they plead not guilty, with John Travers pleading guilty, though, and undergoing the trial first, where the shocking details of the night unravel. The men's defense then switches to relying little on trying to completely prove their innocence, and much more on trying to lessen their involvement in the beating and murder of Cobby. The four men try to say that John Travers alone made the final killing cut, it was his knife, and so he was solely to blame for her death. However, on June 10th, 1987, all five men are found guilty of sexual assault and murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, a rarity under Australian criminal law. Very rare, yeah. Justin Allen Maxwell described the crime as, quote, one of the most horrifying physical and sexual assaults. This was a calculated killing done in cold blood. The executive should grant the same degree of mercy they bestowed on their victim. As of today, all of the men bar Michael Murphy are alive and still in prison, with Michael dying on February 21st, 2019. Gary Murphy, now 62, was recently spotted out of jail for the first time in years after being brutally beaten by a gang of inmates in prison. A group of eight men had jumped and beaten him and his body was found in the shower block by prison guards at around 10.20am. I love this part. So when a helicopter paramedic was called, upon arriving, the paramedics refused to escort Murphy to the hospital, stating he can be transferred by road. <laughs> That's brutal. Holy shit. 
John Cobby, who was Anita's husband at the time of her murder, was quoted as saying that he would love to know the names of those who beat Murphy so he could buy them a bottle of champagne. <laughs> Quote, I'm not one to celebrate people being hurt, but in this case, I hope they broke a lot of bones. End <laughs> wow. Quote. Yeah, nice. So Blacktown was where Anita Cobby came to her tragic, brutal death, and it's the same town where her parents, Gary and Grace, dedicated the remainder of their life to creating spaces for children who were affected by homicide. Oh, wow. Alongside the parents of Ebony Simpson, who was another young girl who was murdered in Australia in 1992, they founded the Homicide Victims Support Group. It was one of its it was the first of its kind being a trauma facility specifically aimed at supporting children affected by homicide and both families created it in the hope that they could support the victims' families and ensure the memory of their daughter lived on forever. That's beautiful. That's really nice. Yeah. A really nice thing to come from a tragic situation. Yeah. So um I believe both her parents have passed away now. Her father passed away from dementia. And I think her mother may have just passed from old age. Right. Mm. But, uh, yeah, just a very horrifying... This poor woman basically suffered two hours, maybe more, of just continuous torture. Yeah, that's just terrible. It's interesting the, the level of severity in the crimes that happen in these earlier years of... Australia, like in the history of Australia, it, it, we have le- we have lesser people than there are in other countries like America, or, you know, for example. And the severity of the crimes that get reported is just extreme. Yeah. You know, we have Ivan Milat, we have this case, the, 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 we have, you know, the, the Port Arthur shootings. There are all these... These changing moments in Australia, the 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 sheer like severity of it, and the underabundance of it. I think it's also like again. I I I watched a a show about this. They talked about like the phenomenon of like the beautiful white woman being in peril. But you know, Anita was this. She's absolutely gorgeous. Like when you look at photos of her, she's just so beautiful. Yeah. She's 26. She's just started her career as a nurse, you know, being this girl who's so stunning. And she's turned down a career of being a model to be a nurse. And she's so young. She's so gorgeous. And she's got like a whole, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's why it's it's the Jean Benet thing. Like, yeah. it's this gorgeous, you know, white woman or girl in Jean Benet's case. Yeah. It's that kind of like... If it happened to her, it can happen to anyone kind of yeah. concept exactly. that I think grips people so much. So for context, in I think around about that time, there would have been many, many, many cases of, you know, murder and rape against Indigenous Australians, for example. Mm. And... A disgustingly high proportion. A disgustingly high proportion. And the whole, you know media outlook of it was oh it's just you know how they are who they are yeah it's just it'll happen to them and then it happens you know to a regular working class australian young woman and then suddenly it's like a firecracker up your ass it's yeah oh shit you know this isn't 
Like, this isn't what the media says it is. Yeah. It's a real thing. It could happen to anyone out there. It's also really sad when you see, when you look at, so John Cobby, her husband, is still alive today. So he was initially sort of the prime suspect. And he was so devastated and traumatized by the public's reaction well, initially to him, when he was a suspect, obviously, you know, 22 days went by before anyone was caught. Yeah. So that's, you know, what, three weeks of it's media coverage, of time. potentially probably just blaming him. Yeah. While you're grieving. While you're grieving. Yeah. And he was basically run out of the country. And it's only recently that he's moved back to Australia. And I believe he's working as a psychiatric nurse in Sydney. Oh, okay. And he's still living in Sydney. Wow. That is just yeah, it's intense. Intense. Yeah. Do you know where he fled to? Um. Oh, I read it, but I didn't write it down. I yeah, believe he went good. to America first, and then the UK for a little right. while. If my memory's correct. Yeah, it's kind of like the um, the McCann story of just like mm. potential suspects having their lives ruined because. Of some sort of, like, media connection. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was obviously cleared. Yeah, of course. But, but uh, still. But that's the thing is an article saying, by the way, it's not the husband mm. doesn't sell as much as, oh, potentially the husband. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, once the killers were actually caught, there was yes, an enormous absolutely. amount of absolutely, media coverage yeah. on that. Yeah. Like, it was just this huge, very public outrage yeah because like i said it's it's such a um not a very abundant thing in australia that when it happens it's you know it's a spectacle it's crazy it's Mm. it's like what is this you know severe thing happening in our country or the country we live in to to regular old people you know yeah it's just um yeah, it's really it's really quite horrible. I didn't really want to go into too many of the details of sort of the injuries she suffered. Sure, it's, it's yeah, quite it's horrific. grotesque. Yeah, um, but yeah, she just had like multiple, you know, broken bones and lacerations on her hands where she tried to defend herself from the knife at the end. Mm. It was just like, but you know, she was she was fucking she fucking fought right. Yeah, she the was end. a badass. She she you know fought as much as she could against them. Mm. You know, refused their their orders and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's just so like two kilometers from her house. Yeah, that's terrible. And for context, what... Blacktown's a pretty um, open, you know, area. Because it's a bit, it's pretty dodgy now. But I don't know if it was back then. I think back then it was a lot of like farm. I think it was just farmers and stuff like that. You know, not to say it's really dodgy. It's yeah, just, it's pretty dodgy. Just not like. The safest place on yeah. earth. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Wouldn't go walking around Blacktown at night time. No, it but name. back then I imagine it wouldn't have been. Yeah. It's, it's like any other, any regular old farm town, you know, you, you cross the wrong person. It's just. But it's also, I think it's just, it's, it's the, what gets me about this case, it's the multiple close calls that could have saved her. Yes. You know, yeah. it's it's the father thinking, oh, she's just pulled a double shift and she's staying at a friend's. It's the couple that saw her being abducted that 
weren't quite quick enough to get to her in time. It's the farmer that heard the screams but kind of thought nothing of it and didn't report it. Like, it's just yeah, so but, many instances where it could have been stopped. But that's the thing is... To be, no one's fault, but the, obviously. That's the thing is the, the scarcity of it all. You yeah. Know, it's, the, it's the idea that this doesn't happen so often that it would warrant someone being like, oh, sounds like someone's being stabbed. Yeah. You know? it's just, it's such a, like, even here, if someone starts screaming outside right now, a blood-curdling scream, we'd be like, the hell is going on out there? Yeah. We'd probably just wait around for a bit until it kind of died down. And then later on, we'd be like, oh, shit, I wonder if someone was getting stabbed. Yeah. You know? For sure. Because it's just not that, especially, you know, our area is not a very violent area. I I mean, I say that, but... Actually, that no, I, I I take that back. I don't think our it's not a very violent area. Violent. That being said, someone did get shot near our train station. It's very true. So <laughs> there is that. Um, but you know, generally speaking, our area is a pretty fairly safe area that you wouldn't really think twice about it. Yeah. But you know, maybe somewhere where it happens more often, you know. Yeah, it's you, just you, um. Yeah, it's crazy. But uh yeah, as I said, it's just a it's just another story. Like I feel like our you know, the things we got taught as kids was was all kind of based off these tragic precautionary tales of you know, don't walk home at night, yeah, don't accept lifts off strangers, don't hitchhike. It's sort of paved the way for a, a distrust or more mm. so just self-preservation. Well, yeah, like I said at the start, many news outlets dubbed her murder as the day Australia lost its innocence. Yeah, I feel like, you know, that's the thing is, in a sense, sure, in in a sense that the, the public thought they weren't as safe as what they were. But the the sad truth is murder, rape and... All such things were always around in Australia. It just wasn't public fucking news. Yeah. It was happening to people that no one really gave a shit about. That's very true. That's all it really is. And then the day Australia lost its innocence was really the day it happened to someone that made people think it could happen to them as well. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. So true. You know? And like you said, Blacktown was maybe not so much of a a rough area or, or not the area was... It is today. And maybe it happening in a farmer's area made people mm-hmm. think, oh, even in secluded areas where, you know, maybe there aren't drug deals or yeah. things like that. It's, you know, yeah, it's just... Uh, just to, just to give just you an so idea. Sad. Both those stories are so sad. Yes, very and sad. all the stories we do on this are sad. Of course. But every now and then you'll, you'll cover one that just kind of, I don't know, just hits the, something in your little... It's heart. sort of just things like... You know, like you like you said, they're all sad and they all should never have happened. But there's some cases where you think, like, how did this happen? Like, why did this happen? I think for me it's also because not where... So, not where it happened, but, like, where she worked and where she got the train is so close to where we live. Yeah, like exactly. Like, where she went and had, you know, dinner with a friend. So, it's like, I can see it in my head. Yeah. Her going out to dinner in Redfern getting the train at Central, like I can see in my head what the trains look like because of 
fucking trains that we have now are still the same. Yeah, the 80s. yeah. This is a like, few I can new see ones. It. But... I can see her like sitting on the train going home. Like, yeah, I think exactly. That's why it's so horrible for me because I can picture it. That's what's so real about it. The same with like um, TJ Hickey. Yeah. Passing away in Redfern. It's like you can see that happening. You can yeah, see like, the Redfern. The, you know, those are the streets that you know Redfern was a, twenty years ago was a very dangerous place. Now it's very gentrified. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's like those streets where all that happened are streets that, you know, we drive down every day to get to my sister's house yeah. and it's all areas that we kind of go through every day and forget that exactly. there's this really horrific history. Associated. When you hear of the Yorkshire Ripper or you hear of Son and Sam running rampant through, you know, streets of not New York City, but New York and you, you like even that... You, you can't really picture it because it's not. We don't live there. We haven't ever mm. been there. You've been to New York City, but you, you haven't been to different cities in the state. Yeah, you know, and you hear about it and you, you you paint a picture in your head, but you can't clearly see it. Whereas with these cases, you know exactly the street that it happened, or the street they're catching the train, like you said, like the yeah. the hospital she works at, the you know where everything has happened, the the Paul Wilkinson stuff, the. Ivan Milat stuff. Like, yeah, the house is just, right around the corner. much closer to home. The house is where Ivan Milat lived at is right around the corner from some of our friends' houses. We've been to Blangelo Forest. Yeah. You know, like, it, it's so... That was so eerie. Yeah, it's just, it's so close to home that it's kind of like, wow. Yeah. You see it in a different light. And, and we kind of get a glimpse into how people felt during the times of Son of Sam and, you know, Ed Kemper. Yeah. And how those people must have felt in those home areas of California and New York when yeah, all this so stuff true. was happening. You know, you can only imagine what it, was, what it must have been like. Yeah. Woof. Yeah, yeah. that was, um, Interesting. That was heavy. I get it too whenever um, someone, even just today, like this case, my case was... Um, when Dunedin was brought up in New Zealand, mm. like living in the 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 family living in New, in Dunedin, and then there was a few other cases um, we've done with Australians where there's been a connection to New Zealand. And it's like even there you, you get that weird, like close to home thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's hectic. Well, I think that's kind of the episode. Yeah. Wrapped up for this week. If you uh, if you stick around to this point, thank you very much for listening. If you're all you're interested in really is the cases, then uh, this is the part where we kind of vamp off a bit and just chat about the cases a bit more and lose our minds. Lose our minds a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that was. So if you are someone that just kind of likes to tune in for the stories, thank you for joining us, and thank we you. will catch you next week yes for those of you who want to stick around and listen to us talk shit for you know 10 15 20 minutes welcome hello how's your day been how's your week been how's your fortnight been how's I feel your like life it's been, been forever since we did this yeah i know it's probably feel... really not been that no long. but in our heads it's like you know at least two weeks though yeah i felt a little bit rusty getting into it yeah which is weird you know Kind of felt like I was just coming home. You were just, yeah, bringing it home? I'm coming home. Yeah. Coming home. Um, I, I really like, I'm there's so many different home. cases to cover too. It's like, 
I don't know what I want to do next. It's just too mm. many at this stage. Because we're I've getting been to enjoying that. doing kind of like the single cases. Yeah, there's a bit more to go into about the psychology of it and the 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 details of the one case. Yeah, because when you get like people who've done um, a great series of murders, you you kind of have to skim over the fact that like this one got strangled, this one was stabbed and strangled, like the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah, it was kind of just you like just have to like kind yeah, of fit it all in. Exactly, you can't really go into detail about where oh, each one was found. The and Yorkshire such. Ripper dies of COVID the oh. day after our episode. Did we do that? No, we. I don't think we we talked about that. No, I mean, did we make that happen? Oh yeah, <laughs> we totally made that happen. So that was on strange. Us. Literally the day that I think probably the same date, just in a different time zone <clears throat> in the UK. Yes, he died of COVID. Yeah. It was couldn't have happened such, to a nicer person. Such weird timing. Yeah, very strange. You know, like it was like just the same week that we're we're talking about it. Yeah, it was very weird. Dude, carks it to COVID. Yeah, there was some like obviously it was a, it was I don't know if it was a troll or what we were talking about this the other day. We couldn't quite agree on whether it was a troll or whether this person was being serious. Someone, like, commented on the photos of Peter Sutcliffe on our Facebook page being like, rest in peace, big guy, a misunderstood mastermind. Like, "Mm, no, we're just going to... Sure. We're just going to delete those comments. Yeah, that's uh, not a very truthful statement. If If that was a Donald Trump tweet, it would be disputed by now. And in all caps. Yeah. Like we're not we're not here to like censor people, but if you're gonna like literally uh romanticize and put on a pedestal a serial killer, we're probably gonna delete your comment because yeah. it's just really not appropriate. Not even like romanticize but just say someone was misunderstood because or that they didn't do the killings that they did. It's just kinda of disrespectful to whoever was involved and such a thing. Yeah. So don't do that. It also disrespects our don't work. Don't do it. You know, we, we research these cases and we know for a fact that that motherfucker did it. So, yeah. You know, so don't you, do it. you read the articles. Be don't, arch. Don't do it. But yeah. Uh, and now, uh, everyone who has the claim of like, does anyone actually know anyone who has COVID? Well, now you know someone who had it Peter and Sutcliffe. died from it. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Check his autopsy. So, what do you think about this uh, COVID vaccine thing? What are your thoughts? Okay. So, there's a few things. There's a few thoughts about it, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's the idea that some people have tried it in the States, but it hasn't been, you know, documented in the sense of Anything more than just a few statements saying they felt like shit for a bit, but then it was all good. Yeah. Okay. So, there needs to be more research on how people have reacted to it or how they've coped with it um, before you can sort of make an assessment on it. Yeah. But also, the argument that, you know, vaccines take tens of years to to formulate correctly is correct. Uh, mm. The only thing you have to keep in mind is modern medicine is traversing at an exponential rate. It just kind of, it stresses me out. I would like a 24-month kind of period before we're pumping it out to the general population. Yeah. So, so you have, it, here's the thing, is 
there's never been anything that's needed this accelerated of a vaccine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's been viruses and, and, and deadly diseases that, yeah. you know, nothing like this has really happened since, like, the fucking Black Plague or whatever. Smallpox, probably. Smallpox is, is a good... Yes. But even then, it wasn't that dramatic of, like, we need it, like, right this second, like... Smallpox was pretty dramatic. But they weren't as pumping it out as they are now. It was... It was... Um, well, they did, and that was the problem. They had the same thing where they rushed the vaccine. They pumped it out to the general population. A bunch of people got really, really sick, and they had to stop giving it to people. Yeah, I mostly mean That's like... my concern. I mostly mean like the, the time between it being a global pandemic and it warranting the whole, yeah. you know, well, vaccine the, thing. The ease of which we have international travel kind of... Uh, enormously accelerated. Yeah. You know, people can, you know, travel hundreds of kilometers in an hour or so. Yeah. It didn't used to be uh, like that. I don't know. I, I, I um, feel there's nothing that dangerous that could result of it. Mm. My you thing know? is, like, you, you know me, I'm not anti-vax by no. any way, shape or form. The only concern I have is the fact that I don't, I the length of the tests concern me, like the length of the studies they've done. I would prefer to sort of understand its effects on the human body within like a 24-month period before I'm lining up to get it. Yeah. I think if you wanted to make as much impact as possible, there needs to be a significant amount of public information made really readily available. And it needs to be documented in a way that is accessible to the general public as well. Yeah. But Something also, that makes sense to them. Sorry. It's also the fact that, you know, I was reading an article say today saying that there's three main pharmaceutical companies that are sort of getting close to a vaccine. Obviously, the first one to get there is going to just make a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. That's the other thing that concerns me. It's <clears> this, like, race to be the first one to get it so you can distribute it globally and make yeah. a ridiculous amount of cash from but that's, global that's the aim of the global game everything yeah, but it's ever that, that existed that kind of like stresses me a bit anything that's ever existed to be globally transmitted in a monetary fashion but like we know big companies will like gladly cut corners to make a quick buck like that's my concern yeah of course and that's that's always been the concern of everything yeah you know that is the concern of literally, literally every consumable product known to man that anything ever can harm you given that companies will cut corners i mean there's lawsuits and 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 such every single fucking day because of it yeah you know who knows where we'll be i i think you know there's the whole idea that it's going to be around for a few more years and you know, we're going to learn have to learn to live with it. But I think the strides that sort of have has been made with the vaccine so far is kind of proving that we're moving at a much more steadily steady rate mm. to be able to combat things like this. Yeah. And I think it's also warranted the idea of we need to be ready for things like this, given the the population increases and the 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 temperature of the Earth's Earth rising and you know. Things like markets where dead animals are sitting right next to each other in a very hot 
world uh, steadily increasing its temperatures and international travel being extremely readily available. Yeah. We're kind of in a position where if we don't have anything to combat it, we are fucked. fucked. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. As as we can see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The world has completely fucking fallen apart in the last 11 months. Yeah. Like, you think back, like, in January, we were just working and we just had a New Year's Eve party. Mm -hmm. We were looking forward to our overseas trip in three months. We were stressing about having enough money to save. Like, fast forward 11 months and the world has changed. Yeah. Like, and that's not an underestimate to say that, like the the whole world has changed it's so bizarre like this year i often think about like what kids in like 30 years time are going to look back and like study 2020 and yeah like i think it's a good study into looking how how public opinion of things changes yeah or, or how public opinion has become much more of a vocalized thing and just, just how, how, given any circumstance or anything that happens ever, there's always a, you know, opposite side argument to it all. Mm, just, there's yeah, masks, or is COVID real? Does the vaccine work? You know, this that. Should you have? Should lockdown be a thing? You know. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how America looks to kind of drag itself yeah out of i don't know what you guys are gonna do i really don't know what you guys are gonna do because you have on one side of the spectrum you have people who are trying to trying as hard as they can to lessen the spread lessen the spread people who just don't give a shit and you have an equal amount of people who just don't care who who don't who a think it's not real b think any counterproductive measure isn't effective. Yeah, it's wild. And I mean, we have that here as well. There of course, was, there was all on a on a lesser scale because we have COVID less we have less people, people and we have much a, less people and much less people. And generally Even, speaking, yeah, we had like protests, people protesting, yeah, being locked oh, down, yeah. people protesting masks, like. Oh, but I think man. because the, you know we have things such as strict gun laws, and we have. Uh, a lower drinking age and we have... Um, Australians are very used to being told what to do. Yes. And it, it, it's a It's a country where we've do. had laws put in place for reasons and the reasons seem to make sense. Grown up literal convicts. Yeah. We're very used to rules. Yeah. <laughs> we are used... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're used to... You can only go outside. We're used to slaps on the wrist. one hour of the yeah. day. The other... we've Yeah, we've just gone back to our roots. Really? Just being stuck yeah. inside, not allowed out. <laughs> That's uh, why we dealt so well that we were like, ah, yes, the olden times. Yeah. I know it well. I feel it in my heart. But you or have, I like... I can say that. You can't. You have a country like America that's very pride-driven. They're very... Well, I think the Proud whole people. like the whole American thing is like freedom. Yeah, and and pride it's in the very, country yeah. and and, and individuality. Beautiful. I do find the uh, 
uh, what's the word? Patriotism? Is that yeah. a word? Yeah. It is very beautiful in a sense, like having that pride for yeah. the country. Like, I don't feel like Australians really have that. No, I, I mean... They're like, oh, yeah, we're all right, a I lot guess. Of, a lot of people have it. Like, I certainly have it for my mother country, New we're, Zealand. Australians are just like, we're not the worst. Yeah. Well, New Zealand also... Oh, sorry, Australia is also very multi-cultural very. place. Like, there's yeah. not a lot of people that you can say, aside from, you know, Indigenous Australians and the Australian, European Australians who came from the first fleet, the convicts, whoop, whoop. like yourself, uh, that you can say you're properly Australian. Whereas in America, like, you know, given... It's the same sort of thing, but there's a lot of Americans that have been in America for centuries. Yeah. You know. Very true. Yeah, yeah, and it's just a. Uh, with that comes a different culture all to- altogether. Yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting. Look from an outsider's perspective, it's a very from an outsider, it seems absolutely fucking batshit insane what is yeah. happening over there at the moment. Yeah, like I don't mean that as a bad thing. I don't mean that as a judgment. Just like between <clears throat> COVID and the election, I think everyone else is just like, what the fuck? Is it's just happening? worry. It's just worrisome. I feel like anyone living in America right now deserves like we should buy people beers. You know what? It, you know what it is. <laughs> Your drinking age should be lowered to eighteen because I feel like you've all you earned it. that. Yeah, <laughs> you have all collectively earned, as a nation. You've yes. earned a lower drinking age. Yes, you have all earned a one hundred dollar bar tab. The drinking age lowered to eighteen. Because, my God, if there's a country that needs a beverage right now, it's it's you guys. What a, yeah, what a, a nightmare. And, and we feel for all our American listeners, you know, we love you guys. We hope you guys are staying safe, staying safe because... Saying safe. Saying safe. Please stay safe um, because, f- like we said, from an outsider's perspective, it's it seems crazy and... Very stressful. You know, maybe it's not for you individually or specifically, but still, you know, our, our hearts go out to you guys mm. and, you know, nothing we say really is, is to, is to criticize you at all. But, you know, it's just, uh, like I said, our perspectives, is just like, whoa, crazy. Yeah. It looks nuts. Yeah. Although in saying that, it probably looked fucking mental to anyone outside when we went through like 17 prime ministers in a month. Oh, or yeah. Something. Oh, yeah. Like Hell yeah. Ago. We changed prime ministers like six times in a year or something. That was mental. We had. I just gave up trying to figure out who was leading the country. I think we had four or five. We had Kevin Rudd, and then we had. Just one second. We had four or five different prime ministers meeting Barack Obama throughout his entire yeah, two terms. Yeah, it was mental. It was Kevin Rudd. Well, it started with John Howard and yep. then Kevin Rudd and then Julie Gillard. And then I think Kevin Rudd took it back. And then Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott. And then Malcolm Turnbull, Turnbull. And then ScoMo. Yeah. And I think before that. That's just a ludicrous. Was, I think before that, Peter Dutton leaders. was about to be. Oh, that would. Yeah, that weasel looking motherfucker. Held our collective breath. Yeah. Look up uh, if you're American or from look somewhere that Peter isn't Australia. Dutton. Look he up looks Peter like Dutton. A literal thumb. He looks like the the hairless gerbil from Kim Possible. He does, mixed with a thumb. Yeah. He has no neck or like skull shape. He's a, he's, he's the like, thumb man from Spy Kids. Very yes. 
And I'm allowed to say that because he's a racist, homophobic yeah. piece of shit. Yeah, he can go fuck himself. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> There's just noises in the distance. This is what you guys thing. subject us to. You guys who have said, no, no, let the cats do their thing. We're just, you wanted it. Yeah, we're subject asked, to noises. You shall receive. Con- constantly heard in the, in, the, in the distance. They probably can't even hear it, but there's someone's doing something in the kitchen. It's very distracting for us. It could be, realistically, it could be any of them. It's probably the kitten. could be any of them. It's most likely the kitten. Probably. Uh, what else this morning we got woken up by one of them vomiting on the floor? As is uh, most other mornings, to be honest. Most mornings, I no. it's maybe once uh, It's a an week. exaggeration. One of them f- likes to throw up because she likes to eat way yeah, more she food eats than her food she can far handle. Too quickly, and then throws it up. Yeah, not the brightest bulb in the shed. No, and she's not a very bright cat. Period. Oh, she is. She's just a bit special. <laughs> she's very special. She's my little sweet girl. Yeah, she's got middle child syndrome. She does. Mm. She really does. Because she's. And the kitten gets away with murder as well, like yeah. the youngest child syndrome. Wow, I've just realised that. Yeah. Uh, I don't really have anything else to say. Yeah, neither. We're at about the hour mark anyway, so. Hello, the trouble. Speaking of the devil. Speak of the devil, and the right devil into the turns into your podcast room. Yeah. Turns into you, comes into your podcast room. Um, thank you guys very much for joining us uh, and... You know, that's yeah. Don't forget to uh, buy our merch and donate to our Ko-Fi because we're paying for a wedding now. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we're saving up for a wedding, so any money you guys can help us with is muchly appreciated. We are kidding, though. We 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 do hope that no one ever feels like financially no, pressured. No, to to do. We understand everyone. We do like money, though. So we do. Lo- I love money. Yeah. So, um, but no, please don't. If you listen to the show, please don't ever. You're feel not like obliged. Pressuring or no. Yeah. We do this for free for a reason because we enjoy it and we want people to listen to it. Yeah. So, yes. But if you did want to, you know, chuck us a dollar or two, our Ko-Fi link is, will be in the show notes. So, basically, it's like a one-off donation of up to like $3 or something. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I don't think I have anything else to say. Nope. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, as I said, we should be back to a pretty regular schedule now and we will take probably a uh, three, four-week break over the Christmas yeah. period. Like I said, we'll, we'll give you guys an update. Um, maybe Shaken Not Stirred will give you an update or yeah. on our socials will give you an update. Yes. So keep an eye out for that. Um, Thanks for tuning in, guys. Speaking of socials, we are the BSC podcast yes. on all things social-like. And if you feel like shooting us an email, we are best served called podcast at gmail.com. Dotteth cometh. Dotteth cometh. Goodbyeth. To you. for cometh. Byeth. <laughs> Byeth. Byeth. I'm a snack. I'm a snack.